it really has to do ultimately with you know everyone achieving an outcome and by everyone I mean you as the founders your investors your advisors your team that is good for them right and and trying to to achieve a positive outcome for everyone and you know positive outcomes aren't aren't there are no absolute terms for that Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Paul Grossinger, who is the co-founder of Gangel Syndicate, Blue Jay Syndicate, A-Level Capital, and Pervasive Group, Inc., Gangel's focus is, is on investments within the LGBT community and it's the world's largest LGBT-focused investment network with the chapters in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles and London. He's made over 61 investments to date as a private angel and an early stage deal lead. As an entrepreneur, Paul was a strategy officer at Imperative and was the co-founder of Pervasive Group and LMG Media, which he later went on to sell. So, Paul, thank you for coming on the show today. Welcome. So, when you're at an event, Paul, how do you introduce yourself? Well, I usually introduce myself as an um, angel investor and syndicator, and, and the fact that I run um, Gangel Syndicate for LGBT founders and Blue Jay and A-Level Capital for Johns Hopkins founders. Because I, I invest these days most specifically, you know, in my own communities. So for me, it's important for people to know that, you know, if they don't fit one of those, it doesn't mean I, I won't look at their company. It just means that I'm much less likely to do anything. Sure. Nice and concise. And um, for such a, I guess, well-respected investor, you're quite young. Like, how did you get into investing at such a young age? Well, you know, I got lucky to have some success as an entrepreneur uh, with my first couple companies. Um, and also, uh, you know, I got into real estate as well when I was younger and have been lucky to do fairly well with that. Sure. Um, and as a result, you know, I was able to start angel investing. I, I certainly don't, you know, never did and, and don't angel invest at the massive numbers that some of the folks in the Valley do per company. I, I got started with fairly modest amounts and and then created my syndicates because I realized that I seemed to have a good eye for companies just based on how well the ones I was in were performing after a couple of years. Um, you know, in, in my role as, as the founder of Angels and the founder of Blue Jay, I invest in every deal as an angel with my members, but I tend to invest fairly modest amounts of capital and focus a lot more on administering a larger amount of money from the group and then also adding value to the companies, um, sometimes just as the, the deal lead and sometimes as an individual advisor. Awesome. And before we get into angel investing and, and the amazing things that you're doing at the moment, can you just talk to us a little bit about the first company which you actually sold? So you created this company called LNM. Yeah. And LNM Media rather. Yeah. And you didn't actually take investment. Yeah, well, LNM Media wasn't really a startup in the classic sense. Uh, LNM Media was a small business. It was a network of websites for uh, sports, and you know we just had a lot of good growth and. 
not, not only was there never really a need to take in capital, it just wasn't a business that was designed for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately we got lucky to, you know, find a home for it. But I don't really look at Ellen and Media as my first startup or as a, as an example of, you know, a high growth company. Um, my first like real startup where we raised traditional financing was Pervasive Group, which is, um, uh, mobile device management company for Android. Uh, we raised a seed round um, from Jumpstart New Jersey, as well as um, a couple of New York Angels and then some other folks uh, back in 2013 after we won the um, best productivity application of the year at the CTIA conference. Yes. And then, um, you know, from there, you know, Pervasive has continued to grow and actually is doing quite well these days. Um, and there was never really the right opportunity to raise a strategic um, Series A. Um, and the company is still in that place where it's growing nicely, but but has not yet um, found that strategic Series A partner. And I personally haven't been day-to-day for a couple of years. Um, and then, you know, my other, my only other entrepreneurial experience was really um, just being the, the chief evangelist as well as the um, first investor and, and one of the board members of Imperative. You know, I was never like full-time every day, seven days a week at Imperative, but I was more entrepreneurially involved um, in that company in 2014 and 2015 uh, than I have been in, in most of my other other companies. But I, I really, starting in, in um, late 2014 and moving into 2015, moved much more into being a full-time investor, at least as far as startups are concerned. Interesting. And it's quite fascinating. And I, I, I should also add, you know, I, I don't, you know, I think I have some good entrepreneurial experience, right. but I, I don't, you know, I don't tend to see myself as like an, you know, in the in the mold that a lot of Valley guys do as some sort of ultra successful entrepreneur mm-hmm. that has, you know, sage advice from selling, you know, some company uh, to them. I tend to see some myself as someone that had some good entrepreneurial experience and some and some good luck, but always has had um, more of an eye on the investor side and on the um, network building side. Right. But I see myself as being very good at doing is, is building networks where we add strategic value to companies. Right. So do you kind of ever impart that wisdom onto the startups that you invest in? Because I know you didn't see LNM Media as a traditional startup, but people could interpret that as just like a traditional startup that could have raised money and could have scaled and could have done this, but you didn't take it that way. I don't, I don't see myself as somebody that wants to tell entrepreneurs they, they should do this, that, or the other. Um, I would say, you know, my entrepreneurial career, as, as I was describing it, was, you know, really, we, we really were doing stuff on the business side or at the seed level side. I don't really have personal expertise raising large series A's, B's, C's. But so I guess one one bit of wisdom that I do have that I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs about is really twofold, which is one, you know, not every business is a scalable venture business. It's mm-hmm. going to sell for a hundred million or a billion dollars, and you shouldn't see that as a positive or val- positive or negative value. You should see that as just a, another qualifier. Yeah. And so, you know, if you have a really interesting niche business that can grow to $5 million in revenue and support you and ultimately find a nice home, you know, don't destroy that potential uh, by raising a $10 million Series A unless it's the right move strategically because you know that. Mm -hmm. I think we're taught, you know, that there's this carbon copy model path that every startup should follow, which is like raise a seed, raise a Series A, find a VC backer, sell for a billion dollars. And that's really not accurate for 90 
99% of businesses. And I, I've been on the record a, bit, a billion times, you know, telling founders, you know, really think about your business. Because I, I will say, I mean, you know, I have, I think, six companies right now in my own portfolio yeah. that have raised somewhere between half a million and two and a half million dollars in total capital, all at valuations below 10 million, where they've now hired investment bankers to basically explore early exit opportunities where they can give their investors a return, the founder a small seven-figure return, and aqua hire everybody into the company. Mm. And because they've raised such a little amount of money, they actually have a very good shot of doing that because they have valuable products and they all have decent revenue and growth and, and there's a need for what they produce inside of some large companies right. on the technical side um, and in one case is on the, in one case on the brand side um, but you know if they had raised 10 million dollars at a 30 million dollar valuation that would not be possible because the VC would block it and because you know it'd be a complete it'd be it'd be a complete money loser for everybody yeah and so as an entrepreneur you know one thing you have to remember is look if you if you create a business and you raise hypothetically say half a million dollars in financing for 20% of your company and then you end up creating a company with a few million dollars in revenue that sells for six million dollars, you know, you're going to get seven figures and actually you can put that away and do a lot of value with that. Yeah. Whereas if you raise $10 million at a huge value and you don't ultimately deliver on the ultimate value of that business that you have been pitching to those investors, you probably will end up getting nothing. Mm. Which is not to say that you shouldn't raise venture money. There's many excellent venture businesses that do raise venture money and I participate in lots of venture rounds. It's just to say that you should really think very thoroughly about the type of business that you have, the type of equity that you want to sell. And the other piece of it is to really look at you know, the equity side of who are you bringing into your company, what are their motivations, and what do they own? Which is not to say that founders should hoard equity. They shouldn't. You yeah. should always be willing to give up equity to the right advisors and also give up more equity to the right investors because they're strategic. But you should really think about the type of rounds that you want and the type of investors that you want in your company. For example, you know, a lot of people naturally assume that no matter what, they want to have a strategic VC backing their company, a uh, prestigious strategic VC backing their company. But they should be very careful of that because if you have a major VC that has, you know, say a billion dollars under management, you know, coming into your seed or, or your early Series A, as is increasingly happening in San Francisco and even in New York, you know, they only want companies to sell for at least a half a million or a billion dollars. That's their goal. Yeah. So if you end up in a situation where you might want to sell for much, much less, it's going to be a problem for everybody. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you took that, you know, that initial seed from angels or a syndicate or somebody like angels where we're strategic for LGBT founders and we, you know, care a lot more about what the founder's outcome is, as long as that also means that we do well financially, uh, you may be much better off. Because yeah. if, if we invest in a business at a $3 million value and it sells for $15 million and we make money and the founder makes money, that's great. We love that. Whereas a VC will not consider that to be a positive result. So why do you think so many founders are so hung up on you know, joining the big name VCs and raising these huge rounds in Series A, B, C? Because that's what we're taught. I mean, you know, I, no disrespect at all to the big VCs, you know, a number of whom are amazing and we do some good work with them and I, and I have nothing but respect for a lot of them. And no disrespect to the accelerators either. You know, what, what Techstars has accomplished, what ERA has accomplished, what Commodore has accomplished is amazing. 
Um, but that being said, it all feeds into this cultural construct that every startup, whether it sells T-shirts or it's the cure for HIV, mm. should be a multi-billion dollar opportunity. And the reality is that some companies, just by virtue of what their market is and what they're doing, yeah. and whether it's a niche um, or whether it's a product company or a SaaS company, are not designed to scale to that level. And you have to think very carefully about, you know, do I have a product business or do I have a web business mm -hmm. or do I have a SaaS business or do I have an actual technology that can scale? And then you have to think within the subcategories, right? There are some businesses that price themselves as a SaaS business, but really aren't a groundbreaking innovation or a large global market. And they're still a niche. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, and in an article that you wrote, I would, Forbes, if, you, if you don't mind, I'm going to just, I, I, I want to add, you know, sure. it, really, it really has to do ultimately with, you know, everyone achieving an outcome. And by everyone, I mean you as the founders, your investors, your advisors, your team that is good for them. Right. And, and trying to to achieve a positive outcome for everyone. And, you know, positive outcomes aren't Aren't, there are no absolute terms for that. It all has to do from on a relative basis to what was the previous value of the company, what what kind of debt or other sorts of mezzanine values are sitting on top of the last value of the company, and how do we produce a positive outcome for everybody. And I have seen plenty of examples where people made a lot more money and everybody was a lot happier with a $25 million exit than with a $100 million exit if mm. there was five rounds of capital in between those two yeah. outcomes. And I harp on this all the time, but I really think it's something that a lot of founders should internalize better. No, I absolutely agree. I think I even read something recently on LinkedIn where it was like a short comment and it said someone like, oh, I exited my business the other day and I got $2 million and we sold for $100 million, but I had to pay all my investors. And the other person was like, oh, I sold my company for $25 million, but I had no investors. <laughs> and, that's, and that's exactly right. And, and that's actually far more common than people think. Yeah. You know, there's... There's a reason that you see all these guys pitching for seed funding when they received $75 million in funding in a Series E three years ago. It's yeah. because either that business didn't work out or it exited, but there were so many different valuations on top of them, the founder and the original seed investors mm. that nobody did that well. Um, and as a seed investor, you know, I really see it as you want to make sure that you can provide a good return to everybody, but also to yourself and really make sure there's protections. And the worst thing that you can do is end up in a situation where you have to take a shark term sheet for $50 million with a max, you know, 3x liquidation preference, 4x liquidation preference wow. on top. I mean, there are plenty of founders that end up in these situations where 90% 90, 90 of the capital on an exit has to go to satisfy their last round or two of investors. And then the last 10% is divided between their seed, their Series A, maybe even their Series B, and it gets ugly. Yeah. And founders leave with nothing. Well, yeah. And, you know, it, it's as a founder, you know, you also you have to think like how much does that you know matter to me that prestige factor of raising money? Because mm. one of the other aspects of it really is that the the impact of your your innovation on the world can often be better if you not necessarily don't raise money. I mean, often you need to raise money, but you raise money judiciously and from the right investors and deploy it, and then you ultimately M&A into the right acquirer that can take your product or your, your innovation global. Yeah. Right? I mean, because as a founder, I think, you you know, we all want 
the maximum impact of what we've created globally while making money. But, you know, going it alone and raising a huge amount of VC money and trying to become an independent brand is one methodology to achieve that. And sometimes it's the correct one, but it's not always the right one. And raising infinite amounts of money doesn't always necessarily produce, um, you know, the desired outcome for companies. I, I think there are, there are some really big companies um, right now that potentially will struggle to get a good return for the last couple of investors. Um, you know, you look at like Instacart losing the Whole Foods account after Amazon bought them. They mm -hmm. may end up doing very well, but certainly, you know, the jury is not out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to refer back to a time when you were a founder again. Um, in an article that you wrote on Forbes, you said that um, you got jealous over ownership of shares yeah. with another co-founder. Yeah. And then it affected your work ethic and the view that you had of your co-founder. And in the end, it kind of like your personal issues should not come into your business issues. Yeah. Like, what was that situation and how did it pan out? Yeah, I'm not going to comment on the exact specifics of which company that was or the name. Um, I probably have in the past, but, you know, by virtue of not wanting to be too difficult. But I would say that that's absolutely true. That certainly did happen to me um, on more than one occasion. So I really had to look in the mirror at myself. Mm. Um, I just gave a speech at Johns Hopkins, actually, um, back in April. It's somewhere online, maybe YouTube, um, about, you know, failure and one's personal failures. And Certainly, one of my failures in my first couple entrepreneurial projects was, you know, really feeling like I wasn't getting enough of a fair shake. And, you know, ultimately, I think there's really two solutions to that. You know, one is address it early and forthrightly with, with your co-founders. And two is, you know, buck up. At the end of the day, um, it's really not... It doesn't make a lot of sense to gripe if you really do believe in the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So address it forthrightly, get the best deal you can do, and then really move forward fully or don't. You know, or don't move forward at all if you if you really believe that you're not getting a fair shake. And have you seen, I guess, any of your portfolio companies? So oh, many, this. many portfolio companies go through this. It, it, it's one of the biggest mistakes of founders that want to hoard equity is that they, you know, you, they try to, they, they want to hire a great team, but they don't give anybody incentive. Mm. And it, it really creates a problem because if, if your core co-founders don't have at a minimum several percent of the company and generally something more meaningful than that, um, it's, it, it will get ugly because ultimately you, every company, maybe except for like Slack or something, but pretty much every company faces challenges. Like mm -hmm. there, I, I have yet to meet more than like a number of companies that can fit on one hand that haven't had huge problems at some point in their development, including the ones that do incredibly well. Right. And as a result, you need people to stick with you. And, you know, if somebody is your CTO, but they own 2% of the company, there's <laughs> no way they will stick with you. Yeah. But if they own 10%, they probably will. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, don't mess around with that. And also don't think that salary is an adequate fix for lack of equity because it isn't. Mm -hmm. You know, talented people can always get the right salaried offer elsewhere. It's the equity and a belief in the project that holds them.
Because at the end of the day, the, the core muse of entrepreneurship, right, is that you're working on the one thing that is going to fix this one problem and mm -hmm. nobody else is doing it quite like you are or as correctly as you are or, or whatever. And so if you own 10% of that project, there's a siren song of that that can't be replicated by somebody else or by Google offering somebody, you know, twice their salary to go there. Whereas if they just have salary, even if that salary is comparable to market, it really doesn't present any barrier. Right. And just sticking with the topic of like failures, um, I guess... You've had plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, haven't we all? Um, what have you seen to be kind of like the biggest issue within startups other than founders? Well, there's a lot. I mean, founders is a huge one. You know, not having the right co-founders, not incentivizing the right co-founders correctly, not firing a bad co-founder quickly. Mm -hmm. I would argue that firing is probably the biggest issue that startups face. Yeah. Hiring the wrong people and not firing them quickly enough. Right. Not addressing situations. That That's a huge problem. Another one is is raising too much money too early at too high of values. Um, you know, there's always this nirvana that a lot of founders have in their head that they should raise money at any time, anywhere, from anyone to to uh, do well, and also that they should um, you know raise as high as value as possible because there's this this idea that I have a pizza pie, and therefore that if I save some of the pie for myself or for a later day that that's better. And it's not necessarily true. Um, I tend to think that the smartest companies raise a a large but not too large amount of money at a relatively good but not terribly high valuation from the absolute strongest investors they can and that they try to get at least two to five somewhere in there right. major investors in their seed mix, right. even if they have to force some of the investors to go down. Um, and that includes VCs. You know, one of the big challenges I've seen, even for multi-exit experienced founders, is they'll just get a huge offer from like a major fund, you know, because they know one of the partners. Mm -hmm. And they'll just take that and they won't let angels in. They won't let syndicates in. They won't let other VCs in. Right. And then, you know, they need a mezzanine round a year and a half later. And the big fund is like, you know, we don't write mezzanine checks. We either do the seed because we like you or we primarily do the series A and B. Whereas if they had three or four funds in there, as well as a couple syndicates and strategic angels, even if they had to prorate everybody's check and it got a little tiny bit uh, challenging at the front end of the mm. equation, it's a lot easier later because then they can go back and either do a follow-on or a bridge or a growth round or whatever it is that they need from those existing investors and they have a few to choose from. Um, the other piece is, you know, governance. A lot of founders um, at all levels make the mistake of assuming that they have the best vision for their company, which they usually do, but that nobody else has valuable opinions to add. So they don't put together a board of directors. They don't have a good advisory group. Mm -hmm. They may have some informal advisors they've given like a little bit of equity to, but they don't sit as a body. They don't think. Um, and they really try to hoard control. Um, and that typically creates huge problems. Um, there are exceptions to that. Um, you know, obviously, somebody like Travis Kalanick built up a lot of control at Uber. Yeah. He really was a somewhat of a one-man decision-making machine mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah. And eventually that came to roost, but obviously not until they were valued at $70 billion. And maybe we all build a $70 billion company. <laughs> but you know, generally, speaking, generally speaking, it's it's not 
a good methodology for building successful companies. You have to be able to take advice from various different parties, including parties that talk to each other mm -hmm. and therefore form opinions together, yeah. but then also be able to say no and go your own way when necessary. It's equally bad, if not worse, to have a founder that just listens to whatever the last person that talked to them's opinion is. That, yeah. that, that might be the worst. I don't think I've ever seen a founder with that mentality succeed. I agree. Um, and you don't only invest in startups, you also invest in funds. Yes. Um, so it, you invested in the Rothenberg Fund. Um, oh. I mean, in SF, yeah. Um, so for those who don't know, um, so Rothenberg Ventures was a, a very controversial fund, should we just say. Um, well, I, I would, I would, um, not in terms of practice. I mean, I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to get too far into this one. Okay. Um, but I would, I would say, you know, Rothenberg was not terribly controversial, um, in the beginning, you know, Mike's, Mike's mindset, you know, for the first, you know, couple funds of, you know, building a lot of attention, getting out there and sure. getting in good deals via access is an intelligent one. It's, yeah. it's quite similar to what to what I do with Gangels. Um, you know, where, where I think Mike had challenges, and, you know, I really don't want to get too deep into this because Rothenberg is an ongoing concern. It's mm -hmm. not ancient history. Yeah. Um, is around uh, accounting practices and best practices for governance of a large fund. Yeah. Um, and I, it, this one, I will actually make a comment that this goes back to as angels and syndicators, we're always making... Um, we're always making judgments on whether we want to do a fund or not. Um, and at personally, I much prefer angel investing in syndication because it gives me a lot more flexibility on what I want to do. And it also gives my investors more flexibility on what they want to do. But that also means they have to own more responsibility for their decisions and what they want to fund. That's all I'm going to say about Rothenberg. You know, I, I he's, he's, um, He's an ongoing concern, and as an LP, I, I hope it works out. Very diplomatic response. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the reality is that running a fund is challenging. I'm not in Mike's shoes. There are things that I think a lot of folks would have done differently, but I certainly hope that it all resolves itself. Sure, great. Um, and I will talk a little bit about... Um, something that you wrote again in Forbes where yeah. you said if you you can't have a business plan for how you would spend 10 million dollars today what did you mean by that well i think that startups are a study in long-term vision and strategic and spending incrementalism meaning you have to have this large all-encompassing vision of how you want to achieve your goals yeah. and how you really want to um, be successful and get there and that has to be a multi-year vision however you can't just turn around and be like okay well i'm now going to take that multi-year vision and i'm going to build for how i'm going to spend on that for three or four years mm. so when i said 10 million i was really referring to seed companies that want to raise huge amounts of money for three to five years of spending planning and i don't believe in that i think you can really only plan out from an actual spending perspective your next 12 to 24 months right. now for raising a series a it's totally fine to spend 10 million dollars over 12 to 24 months sure. but at the seed level you really shouldn't be doing that you should be building iterating testing learning with your first one to five million dollars or even 200k to a million dollars sure. and then going from there. I much prefer companies that raise small amounts of money, prove that it works, and then raise more money 
and then prove that it fully works and then raise more money, you know, if they need to, if they need to, because it's, it's really also, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon you both for your investors and for yourself to prove that what you're doing really does have value in the marketplace. There is really a need for it. And once you prove that, you know, really go out there, but you know, just gathering $10 million for the sake of gathering $10 million is not doing anybody any favors, including you. Absolutely. So in the beginning, as an angel investor, you know, let's say a startup comes to you with a product that's in beta or, you know, I don't know, a handful of users, yep. very limited data. How do you make a decision on who you're going to invest in? Yeah, I mean, I'm a tough person to ask this compared to other people because I run very specific community syndicates. So, you know, to take Angels, for example, and, and Blue Jay being even more extreme, you know, we fund companies that are in the LGBT community. They, they, they have founders that are LGBT because we don't care what their subject matter is as a, as a product. Right. Um, you have to have a founder that's LGBT or a senior board member with equity that's LGBT. There, there has to be a major LGBT connection to the company. Which one, you know, creates focus for us, but also means just by virtue of how the LGBT community engages, um, and anybody in the LGBT community will know what I'm talking about, um, you know, you're pretty much one, maybe two degrees of separation from anybody. So as a result, if I get a, a good founder coming into me, I'm almost always, I would be tempted to say always, but there's no such thing. Um, able to do, you know, really good diligence on the person, on the team, and in Gangel's case as well, just by virtue of where we sit in the marketplace and the members that we have and the fact that a lot of them are, are thankfully very high profile and, and really awesome people, mm. we tend to get a lot of our companies from VC co-investors, um, uh, accelerators that we work with, nonprofits that we work with that know founders and also our own members companies and friends of our members. And so we tend to have a lot of background information um, on companies. I don't really have situations where somebody will just email me on Gust and tell me I have a company and I don't know who they are from Adam and I have no point of reference and I don't have anybody who's a mutual friend and I have no, no reference on their track record. That doesn't really exist. Before Gangels existed, when I was an angel, I did have some of that. Um, and, you know, to be frank, from a track record standpoint, um, investing individually as an angel in companies where you don't have a point of reference to the person and you're not doing it with a group or a fund that has a good track record is a really good way to lose money. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, statistically speaking, you know, there, there's a few there's a few stats on angel investing in VC that really have held true. I mean, the most famous of them, which is which is I would say 100% correct, is that if your entire portfolio as an angel is less than five companies, you have an almost a virtual certainty to lose money mm -hmm. over time. I mean, unless you just get really lucky. If your portfolio is less than 10, you still have a decent chance to lose money. Once you hit 20, that's really the threshold where doing more than 20, you should have a strong return. I mean, statistically speaking, 
if you invest in over 20 companies and you co-invest with strong um, you know, VCs and or syndicates that you know and that you're part of or that you're an LP in or you're friends with or, or all three, mm-hmm. um, you know, angel investing VC is over time um, one of the best, if not the best, performing categories um, economically. Um, for investment uh, of any of anyone but you have to do a lot of companies and you have to do them through strong co-investors so that's all to say that i i don't highly recommend or actually i don't recommend at all um investing in people who you don't know uh by yourself i don't think that works i think you have to work with a group and or a syndicate and or as an lp in a fund that you like and trust any one of those three and invest directly through them in a portfolio of at least 20 companies over a two to five year period if you want to be successful in this industry. Um, You know, when we meet new investors, and this is no secret to any of the investors that have joint angels, we always talk to them about, well, you know, if you get into this category, you should plan to invest in at least 20 companies, whether it's through us or others or a mixture, that's fine. That, that has nothing to do with it. But you should invest in at least 20 startups. And every startup that you invest in should have other good co-investors, either your syndicate network or several. It should not just be you by yourself dropping in money because you like somebody. That That is, <laughs> it, I'm sure it's worked out in yeah, the past, um, but it's not typically a good method. Now, if you're out in the valley and you're investing in your friends who are multi-exit founders and you do at least 20 of them, that works too. But again, that's you co-investing with other smart people in previous successes. It's not, it's not equating to investing in somebody you don't know. So I think obviously that makes sense and you hear all the time that people only invest in people or will only take a meeting if it's a warm intro. But then doesn't this create that, I guess, the issue that we see in venture capital where people can't break into those networks because they didn't go to the right schools or they didn't know this person or they didn't know this person. So how, so it becomes very incestuous very quickly. Mm-hmm. So how do founders who don't come from that background or who don't have access to that network break in? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, that's life. Um, you know, if, if investing or, or founding companies was easy, everybody would do it. Sure. But, in all but then it becomes this kind of like... No, no, I, I, I accept the question. It, it's a very valid one. Um, I think it's a difficult thing. You know, with Gangels, we always wrestle with this, you know, where our mission is back the best founders in our community. But that can't just mean back every multi-exit guy that we know who's an investor in our network either. There has to be a mix. Right. Um, one of the things that we do to mitigate that is by creating relationships with different um, entities in different parts of the ecosystem. So we have relationships with some universities, we have relationships with some accelerators, we have relationships with some funds, but we also have in, uh, relationships with some nonprofits. Uh, so, for example, um, we do a good amount of work with Startout for their demo days and their Meet the Angel events. And we've also done work in the past with Out in Tax Tech Days um, and Out in Tech events and the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. Um, you know, we so so for example, um, you know, if a company wins a startup demo day or they win the NGLCC annual pitch contest or they're featured by Out in Tech, they'll send that to Gangels and we'll review that. And so that founder may not have gone to Stanford. They may not be a white male. They may not have sold a previous company. But because they've 
they've been sent to us by someone we know and they're they're distinguished in that way, we will give it a full review. And so that broadens our network and our scope within right. the LGBT community. And that that has actually helped us um, fund a lot more diversity so far. Um, and, if, and if one looks at Gangels' portfolio online, they'll notice uh, quite a healthy mixture of stage and, and type of founder um, in, from a diverse standpoint. So we, we try to do that. That being said, you know, you, I think there's a big difference between investing in only in people you know or can, or you know the person that referred you, which is a good thing. Like a third degree of and then just having, you know, only one network. So you're just really myopic, which I don't think is a good thing. Like, I don't, like, I'm not a believer in saying, okay, because Stanford founders are statistically better at performing billion dollar, creating billion dollar companies, I'm only going to invest in Stanford people. I don't believe in that. On the other hand, I also don't say, well, you know, because I want to create a wide network, I want to just invest in everybody that approaches me online. The other thing that we do at Gangels, which has been helpful, is we're increasingly creating chapters in different cities. So mm -hmm. we now have an operating London chapter, which has a local London lead. We have an operating Toronto chapter with an local, a local Toronto lead. We're starting in several other mid-sized cities. And the goal there is that the local leads and the other members that they have in those cities have access to not only the local VCs and entities, but also other local successful entrepreneurs that are raising that we wouldn't see in New York or LA or San Francisco. And so, you know, I would love for Gangels to fund, you know, the best company that we find in Chicago every quarter mm -hmm. and then syndicate that out from Chicago to the rest of our cities and, and, and fill out deals. And that's another way, I think, to create more diversity in the portfolio and open up more access, but without without um, taking away the, the key distinction that we invest in people that we know and come to us by strong reference. Oh. Does that answer the question? Yeah, no, I think that's a good, I think a good, a good response. Um, okay, I want to switch gears a little bit now. Um, okay, so let's say, for example, I've been introduced to you, Paul, through a very trusted source. Right. And we're talking, and I'm like, look, Paul, I want to raise some money. What, what should I do before I you know, start knocking on doors and start looking for money? What are the things that I need to do? What should I have in place? Well, you have to have a strong business plan in place right. and you have to have a strong, um, you know, really plan for how you want to scale and succeed. You know, you can't come into um, an investor, you know, unless you know them extremely well and just say, okay, I'm doing this. Let's, let's do it together. You have to have a real methodology. The other piece is I think you have to have a strong team in place, you know, at least the, the very senior C-level people. Um, you know, I don't like to see one person founding teams. I don't, I don't think that's effective, yeah. uh, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that's it. That's all. <laughs> yeah, those are the big things. Yeah. Uh, I would say, I would say, strong team, governance, um, you know, growth plan, and clear product roadmap, and and um, market opportunity. And how should startups go about if they should um, build building an advisory board? You find the people that, one, have the key strategic knowledge that you want in each sector that you need for your company, and then also people that you know well. So there should always be at least one or two investors, generally one angel and one person who has more venture relationships. There should be an attorney for governance perspective, mm -hmm. um, and generally one marketing salesperson who's an advisor for your business development and sales growth. Interesting. And equity-wise, how much should you be giving your advisors? 
I tend to batteries. I tend to think that for a good advisor, um, a half percent a year is a good number, and it should be over three or four years. Um, if an advisor is more high profile and or they control access to something, you know, not just their expertise, but some more concrete value adds, maybe a percent a year. Depends on it. Depends on the person. I I, I can say for myself these days, I, I I won't do like a advise for a quarter percent of a company, which is kind of the standard. Like what they'll tell you in in you know in in um, startup school, you should give somebody ad. That wouldn't interest me. It would wouldn't move the needle. Uh, I just I, I I have no interest in spending time with a company that thinks I'm worth a quarter percent. <laughs> it's just not worth it. Yeah, that's fair. And finally, what's the single piece of advice that you would give to a startup founder right now? There's so many, but I'd go back to um, hire the right people, and if you haven't hired the right person, fire them quickly. When when do you know the right time to fire someone? You know, I think if you talk to most successful founders, you'll find that they know when they should fire somebody because they're not effective, and they just don't tend to do it quickly enough because they think it's too hard. Mm-hmm. But it's the the longer you wait, the harder it is. Yeah. Now I'm not saying you know if, if if they suck after a month, that's not enough time. You really do have to analyze it. But oftentimes founders will fire somebody a year too late, wow. and that's a lot. Yeah. You know, generally if they're not performing at the level expected or they're a cancer to the team for a quarter, I would say that's a, a very valid time to make a change. And certainly if it goes on for another quarter after you have a conversation with them, you really got to pull the plug. It ain't gonna get better. Yeah. Awesome. How can people find you if you want to be found? <laughs> well, everybody knows my LinkedIn. They can um, they can Google me. I, I would say generally, though, it's best to reach out through um, someone that may know me. I, it's really not that hard to find somebody. Gangers is a rather large network. Blue Jay is a pretty decent-sized network for Hopkins. Um, and I certainly work with a lot of um, venture people as well, so it, it's not that difficult. Awesome. Thank better, you so better, than Cody, better than cold emailing me. Sure. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Paul. Thank you. Also. Just want to say another massive thank you to Paul for coming on the show and dropping some fire on us. I absolutely think every entrepreneur needs to hear what Paul has just said. Um, All too often, entrepreneurs chase investment more than they chase customers and profitability. I think Paul's philosophy is extremely contrarian given the current lay of the land in terms of startups and everyone chasing VC capital. He's definitely given me a lot to think about myself. What about you? Okay guys, as always, thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review on the Apple's iTunes app store. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, keep grinding.